everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s, except when we take books from 2001 that are set in the 1960s like we are today. Uh, it's dawning on me very soon on this show, I get to start saying the X-Men comics from the 1970s because we're almost done with the 60s stuff. <laughs> I am uh, thrilled to be joined by three returning guests, uh, three people that I admire and respect, and I'm so happy to have you all here. Uh, let me have you each introduce yourself. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And uh, during our, our introduction today, uh, our question is, if you could repeat a year of your life, what year would you choose to repeat? Uh, let's start with my friend, Ariana Marr. Hi, Ariana. Hello. Uh, I'm Ariana Marr, pronouns she, her. I um, letter a number of comic books, including I've done um, Hellions, uh, Sword, X-Men Red. Uh, every year I get to do uh, Marvel Voices Pride, which is like one of the highlights of my year every year. Um, so yeah, I letter a number of comic books for Marvel. And all and, of these Memoko stuff, so good. Oh yes, Demon Days for sure. <laughs> Demon Wars currently. Um, if I could repeat a year, uh, it's hard to say because, um, you know, there's only, like, I don't know what choices I made to get me to where I am right now. And I don't want to mess that up, but maybe the year I was in Brazil as an adult, just so I could study Portuguese harder. <laughs> Fantastic. Ariana, it's great to see you. Your, uh, your next your Patreon episode with me, the on the Engarai, is going to be the next uh, public release on the main channel. So I'm excited. Oh, exciting. <laughs> I'm excited to put this out around the same time. Uh, I'm so happy to have my friend Steve Fox coming back. Hi, Steve. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Uh, yeah, my name is Steve Fox. Pronouns he, him, his. Uh, and you may know me from writing books like X-Men 92, House of 92, the Spider-Ham books at Scholastic, uh, recently an X-Men Annual, which was really exciting, and um, some upcoming Marvel stuff I can't talk about yet, <laughs> as well as editing uh, James Tynan's Image Projects, um, of which there are more than the public knows about. If <laughs> um, I could repeat a year. So when I get to repeat a year, do I get to do things over or am I just enjoying it again? You know, I think you get to interpret that question however you like. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know what it says about me, but my first thought was that I'd go back to being like 10 years old just so I wouldn't have any obligations for a year. <laughs> just nothing to do, no one expecting a single thing out of me and uh, just reading comics and playing video games. <laughs> Fantastic. It's good to see you, Steve. Happy New Year, my friend. Uh, and Happy then lastly, I am so thrilled to be joined by the incredible Tom Brevoort. Welcome back, Tom. How are you? I'm 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 good, Chad. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks uh, for I'm, coming. Sure thing. Uh, I'm Tom Brevoort. I answer to pretty much anything. Uh, I edit uh, a, a full swath of your favorite and sometimes not so favorite Marvel comics every month. <laughs> uh, and I don't know that I need to repeat any year of my life. I did them. They were hard enough. They're done now. Uh, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to just do the next one. <laughs> That's exactly fair. I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be where I'm at too. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he him pronouns. Uh, I, um, I, I contemplated this question. The reason we're asking this, we're going to we're going to do an issue about Angel today where he's looking back on a previous, more innocent time in his life. We'll get there in a while. Uh, I um, 
So my story, I got married and had kids before coming out. So I'm tempted to go back to the year I came out, which was when I was 32. But then I would have a baby and a toddler again. I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> but that was a good year for me. It was kind of a year of like big liberation and like uh, a big change. Uh, uh, yeah, that's probably what I'll choose. I uh, Knowing my children now at 14 and 11, it'd be trippy to go back and see them when they were babies. You like predict the future and like know what's going to happen. It's kind of crazy. Uh, that's a weird thought to have. Uh, so we, uh, we're going to begin by just kind of talking, uh, Tom, when you came on the show last time, we got to talk a lot about, uh, what it means to be canon and like run a fictional universe. And I kind of want to follow up on that conversation today. Sure. Sure. When we we get there in a minute, we're going to be talking about the Sentry and the X-Men. So kind of building on that theme, I wanted to begin with the idea of, uh, Marvel Comics has been publishing books for a bajillion years at this point. And every once in a while, they will tell a big story that was kind of meant to have been there all along. Uh, Sometimes it's a revelation like X-Men Deadly Genesis or like Aunt May's not really dead. It was a soap opera actress or like Dum Dum Dugan was an LMD the whole time. But once in a while, they'll really expand on a theme. They'll take a, they'll take a series and set it in the pre-continuity and really build on it. And we're supposed to believe it was there all along. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about some of those major changes. Uh, and I would love to just pick your brain and we'll just talk about it if that's sure. okay. Sure. All right. Yep. Yep. Hit me. The first one that really comes up for me is the Invaders. Now, Roy Thomas, I know, was a huge fan. I've had the chance to interview Roy a huge fan of the World War II heroes. And in the 1970s, they launched the series Invaders, which is meant to be a World War II team of heroes that was just there the whole time. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Invaders and how that fits into the continuity. And anything you want to share about these like retcons is is wonderful, of course. Sure, sure. Well, Invaders, for for me, Invaders was much, I'm sure like everybody else here, Invaders was always a thing that existed because I started reading Marvel books in the 70s, pretty much right after Invaders had been launched. So so for me, I never really knew a Marvel Universe without it. But Roy, as you say, he grew up in the 40s. He was a huge fan of, of the characters that he had read uh, when he was a kid. And so as he left being the editor of, of Marvel and went freelance again and was starting to build other titles that he could write on a freelance writing basis, uh, he was able to convince Stan and whomever to do a book set in in World War II, which is an era that he clearly loves. Uh, when he went over to DC, he kind of did the same thing with the Justice Society and the 40s characters in in All Star Squadron and later Young All Stars. Like, like that's a that's that's a prime period for him because that was when he was a young guy, uh, you know, uh, a first first discovering comics. Uh, and so the invaders, you know, basically presupposes that uh, all of those golden age covers that you would see on, on old ancient books that Alex Schomburg would do with the human torch and the submariner and captain America, typically giant uh, smashing the heck out of, you know, some, some Nazi war machines or, or, or invading armies or punching um, Hitler in the face. <laughs> yeah. 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 Beating up, uh, you know, horribly offensive racial caricatures. All of that more or less happened. Like there was a group. It was, you know, essentially Cap the Torch and Namor and a few hangers on. Uh, and they were, for some reason, called the Invaders, even though theoretically 
they were on the defense. I don't understand it. I think it was just a good title that uh, that sounded dramatic and fit in well when you already had an Avengers and a Defenders and a Champions. It, it, it fits that style very, very nicely. Uh, and Roy basically took the position on Invaders that all those World War II comics were just that. They were just comics. So they didn't they didn't matter. They didn't count. Uh, you know, there was stuff in them that you know had kind of really happened, but it probably happened in a slightly different way to avoid all the junk that he didn't care about and that no reader in the '70s knew about. Um, and and instead, he could he could play more into the real world history and, and reinterpret some of those old characters in a way that might be more viable in the seventies context and so forth. So it played very fast and loose with history that nobody at the time, especially cared about Uh, in the, in the years since a whole lot more of that forties material has been worked in and brought back and refurbished and so forth, you know, to the point where now, uh, you know, it's not like all those comics definitely happened, but as much as possible, we sort of take the position that, yeah, okay, if we if that story was put out, more or less that stuff probably happened, other than, you know, stuff like the Human Torch flying to Jupiter under his own power, things that were, <laughs> yes. that were just absolutely impossible. And even that, you could come up with a rationale. If Roy was retelling that story, you know, there'd, there'd be some scientist with a force fieldy thing that could generate enough of an air pocket to enable the torch to do that or whatever. Um, so, so it was kind of the first real step towards that because while, you know, we'd seen, we knew that Captain America had been around in world war two and, and that the Namor had been there and so forth. Uh, you know, those adventures were only alluded to infrequently in the regular Marvel books of the time. Like there, no, 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 actual stories not many actual stories had been set during that time there was one issue with sergeant fury that captain america and bucky were in and uh yeah every once in a while they you know they'd send the avengers back in time to to fight the three of them uh because kang and the grandmaster were having a game or 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 whatever but uh invaders was basically taking that codifying it as a book uh, and making it a part of, of of the history and it's kind of been a part of the history ever since and there's so much content that goes into that as well that keeps getting expanded on listeners if you want to know what it's like to work on the marvel handbooks i'll give you the challenge of just put together captain america's world war ii chronology front to back that's it just until it gets to the iceberg and then see what happens (laughs) yeah captain america has had more world war ii era adventures then you can actually fit into the war. He's <laughs> he's he's the mash TV series of World War II. <laughs> and then you add in like the twelve and the all winners squad, and I mean it just goes on and on. But yeah, there's this idea of the the forties heroes uh, being celebrated in that way, which I love. But they will always be added onto. Uh, people will keep telling more and more stories set in that continuity, so it's ever expanding. Uh, okay, second one I want to focus on, and, and Tom, I know from my handbook days, this is one you uh, you have opinions about, but uh, let's talk about Marvel The Lost Generation. Uh, yeah, the idea behind Marvel The Lost Generation is, uh, and it's a very complicated idea for a book, really, because most ordinary readers don't care about this stuff the way we do and the way we figure it out. 
but uh, in essence, uh, because the characters in Marvel Comics age, effectively age slowly, if, if at all. Um, you know, Spider-Man was first published in 1962. He was 15 years old. He got bitten by the, the spider and he's been in publication for 60 years. And he's now maybe, maybe 28 years old. So that means that all of those 60 years of stories have happened in only a span of, what, 13 years, 13, 14, 15 years. Uh, and that's a constant, you know, uh, 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 ratio that goes on. Next year, he'll still be 28. And next year, all the stuff that he's done in the last year will be part of that compressed 13 to 15 year period. So it's constantly being dragged along behind the present uh, in an attempt to keep these characters from being uh, getting too old. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in, in practical terms, that means really hard to, to, to reckon with ideas like, you know, when Captain America was thawed out of, 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 of suspended animation, the president was Barack Obama. Uh, and very soon the president will be will have been Donald Trump. So so, you know, that's a that's a hard thing for most casual readers to, to reckon with. But it's one of those things that sort of it's it's an underpinning of the Marvel Universe. It's a necessity because uh, the characters don't age in real time and really age very, very slowly. And you're constantly compressing more and more you know, aggregated story material into a very small uh, amount of stuff. In, in typical fashion, most readers just don't notice this or care about this anymore. <laughs> than they care about the fact that, I don't know, Charlie Brown has been a kid since 1950. Or Bart um, Simpson should be 45, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But, but, but two of the guys who were involved in figure, figuring this out and working this out when the handbooks were first being put together in the 80s with Mark Grunewald were John Byrne and Roger Stern. And so in the late 90s, uh, they put together a series called Marvel the Lost Generation. And their take was, well, if we're now up to the point where, I guess at that point, you know, Captain America was thought out maybe when George Bush was president or whatever, <laughs> sure. then that means there's now a whole swath of time in the 60s and 70s and, and whatever where there were no superheroes. You know, we have the actual characters that were published in the 40s and 50s, and then the characters that were published in the 60s were the Marvel heroes. So they said, well, why don't we come up with a whole bunch of new characters that we could sprinkle into that area? And so Marvel The Lost Generation is basically 12 issues, sort of reverse engineering all of these characters that were around for Watergate and the first moon landing and, and, and all of these events during that, that period. Um, and, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was 12 issues. Uh, I know it, it, uh, it sort of crossed over slightly into, uh, uh an issue of amazing Spider-Man that John was uh, drawing and co-plotting at the time and so forth. And really that was about it until, uh, myself and Mark Guggenheim brought them back during secret wars in, uh, in, uh, the squadron sinister limited series that we did for that. But they've, they sort of. Uh, it was a nice idea. They didn't really catch fire as characters, and pretty much nobody's really done much with them since. But I look at them and go, oh, there's probably some good raw material there if you had the right idea or the right writer. 
I uh, I remember reading that as a kid and you mentioning that like jogged a, a long frozen part of my brain. There's like a, a jumping girl or something I remember on the cover of one of them. Yeah, um, yes, there was. I think she was a she was an eternal. I think she was an eternal. Oh, of, of course she was. <laughs> um, because they yeah they had a they they again they had a bunch of it was twelve to fifteen characters that they introduced actual new heroes and then theoretically they had their own villains and things and. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a whole mythology. They weren't necessarily very deep characters because when you're introducing that many characters in only that number of issues and you're also doing stuff with actual Marvel Universe characters, uh, it, it, you know, you don't have a lot of space to, to delve really deeply into, into these things. They tended to be more types of characters than they were really uh, richly developed individuals because they just didn't have the, the, the space uh, to, to be gotten into that way. Um, but as, as types, you know, they work just fine. They have mostly nice John Byrne costumes. Uh, I don't know that they really look or feel like they were created or came out in the sixties or seventies, but, uh, you know, that's, that's fine at this point. There's now more time there. So maybe they came out for in the eighties or nineties. Maybe they are the superheroes of 1999 now, which is currently before any of the Marvel characters were there. Uh, and that was kind of the problem. I know I had the, the difficulty with it at the time, uh, and I have more of the difficulty now, partly because, uh, you know, not really thinking ahead far enough, uh, 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 Roger and John did stories during that Lost Generation that involved Marvel hero characters before they were Marvel heroes. So Reed Richards is in one as just, you know, the scientist guy who's involved in stuff. And it's like, well, that doesn't work at all now because, you know, if, if, if Reed hasn't become Mr. Fantastic until whatever, 2008, um, he's at least 10 or 20 or 30 years younger when that story comes along and he must be the most brilliant baby on earth <laughs> or, or that guy was a different guy. You know, like if you're going to do this and really think about it, you kind of have to go in and go, it can't be anybody who's who's going to slide along with all the moving stuff. You can build off of stuff that, that's not going to slide. They use Namor in some issues, and that's fine, because the, it just means the amount of time that Namor was uh, uh, lost and amnesiatic and living in the Bowery just constantly gets longer and longer and longer <laughs> as that stuff slides. That'll fit in fine. Once you bring in you know, Reed and Ben and whatnot, you're 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 done. You've you've bollocksed it up. The uh, I, I mean, I'll add a couple thoughts onto that. The the idea of like the FF is trying to get to the moon before the Russians, but then later it's just a space shuttle headed to a distant planet. Like it, it, that type of thing's constantly updated. If I'm remembering, yeah. there's also an early issue of the FF that talk about uh, Ben Grimm and Reed Richards in World War II, but then yes. later they had to make it a time travel thing instead of they were actually alive during that time. Yeah, it wasn't even a time travel thing at this point. It's just kind of been erased. It's just been dropped. It's it's. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. You kind of just go. Uh, the Doctor Doom thing was a time travel thing. Roy used, oh, yeah, yeah. Roy used Doctor Doom in a couple of issues of Invaders, like a young Doctor Doom in the 40s. And we very quickly, I mean, even when he did it, it didn't really fit the, the, the timing. But, you know, by, the, by a couple of years later, it totally didn't fit. And we did a story in, in Marvel Universe, Roger Stern again. 
uh, that 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 turned that into a time travel story. That Doom had gone back to be in that invader story, and then a bunch of stuff happened as a result. Uh, Ariana, go ahead. Oh, it's just it with all the Fantastic Four stuff. It kind of reminds me how there's like just this sliding time scale that a lot of fans just learn to accept, especially when it comes to Marvel and comics. It's like you know. Characters are going to age, but there's still going to be so many stories you want to tell about them. You kind of accept the things that are cool, let go of the things that are not. Like they accepted a lot of of Magneto's lore, even though he would be like 150 <laughs> at that time. Yeah. Because it was cool lore. And then there's just the generations of the X-Men. Like you have the new mutants who should be older than me now. And they're still like in their early 20s meanwhile you have generation x which should be like seven ten years younger than new mutants but they're about the same age now and mostly forgotten at times sadly generation x was my generation of young x-men cool kids but yeah and then you have the new x-men who were kind of like both really young or really old depending on what storyline you need them for they're either college age or preteens depending on what you need there's but, enough rea- there's enough reality warpers you just blame them the time yeah. goes way down <laughs> yeah but you- I think a lot of that right now is kind of it's kind of has a nice big band-aid over all that with Kirk and resurrection like if you could come back through resurrection i would probably come back at least 10 years earlier, so I don't have to deal with half my health problems right now. (laughs) Uh, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think about this all the time, both as a fan and as a writer. Uh, You know, last night I was watching an episode of X-Men the Animated Series, which I do actually still do casually all the time. Um, And thinking that in, in 1992... It's not that strange for Magneto to have been a Holocaust survivor. And then that difference of three years or 30 years makes it, you know, completely absurd. He would be a geriatric, uh, post post geriatric. Um, but also I, I was speaking with a I'm trying to think of the safe ways to talk about it. Speaking with a collaborator on an upcoming Marvel project about referencing a flashback that was quite, you know, in the past at the time, but because of the sliding timeline, is now taking place in like 2005 <laughs> like <laughs> it's taking place while Britney Spears is wearing her you know all jean outfit at the VMAs <laughs> like it changes things so much especially since I'm in my early 30s realizing that I'm now writing all these Marvel characters and they're younger than me like yeah Cyclops is is younger than me probably Jordan would insist he's like 27 forever so <laughs> it's it's a strange perspective to have on these characters especially having grown up seeing them as larger than life figures that are always going to be ahead of me in age yeah, well, um, oh Tom go ahead I'm sorry I was say that's that yeah that that that's something that you yeah you know, like 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 for the most part fans don't have to grapple with that too much because they you know really we we kind of go out of our way to try not to really nail down the ages of the characters and so forth too concretely because it just creates too many problems. So, you know, I, I see people all the time talking about how, you know, whatever, how Peter Parker is 30 or 40 in some cases. And I go, well, no, no, he's not. But mm-hmm. if that's what works for you as a reader, that's, that's your own particular head canon. It only really becomes the thing that like, in building the, the the stories and in building and maintaining the universe, 
uh, you have to pay attention to. I had a I had a friend in college who was an avid Spider-Man reader, but who was growing dissatisfied with the book because he was getting older and Peter Parker wasn't. And his his great declaration that I remember to this day was always, the day I'm older than Peter Parker is the day I'm going to stop reading it. Uh, and that that must have happened at this point, you know, 35, 40 years ago. So I assume he's not reading the book anymore. Or maybe he had a change of heart when he got there. But it's, you know, it's a it's a thing, you know, and it's just a reflection of the fact that uh, these characters, they weren't really designed to have lived as long as they have. Uh, and since they have, we've had to take steps and different people at different times have taken different steps to make this all kind of work. But it all only hangs together because we say it does and we don't stare at it too, too closely. Um, you know, there's there's no way to explain this every once in a while. Fans will come up and say, I've worked out the time scale and it's seven Marvel Mar real world years to one Marvel Universe year. And I go, yeah, that's great today. But in five years, that calculation isn't going to work anymore. So but but again, if it maybe made they it, expect you to get a no prize out of your pocket and hand it to them or something. Well, they you know, they, they again, they thought about this and they put a lot of mental energy into it. And like, it's great. Like, if that's your thing. I know I can hear that and go, no, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I've been around long enough to know that five years from now, the whole board is going to be slightly different. And, you know, it, it, it can't be a thing that's just retroactive. It has to be going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, you know, so, uh, I, you know, the, the, the big one that was always a hiccup for people was 9-11. Was Captain America has been unthawed after 9-11 now for years. <laughs> and that just seems weird. <laughs> because it was such a big uh, moment in 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 world history, uh, and yet that's just the way it is. And so you know we're now far enough away from 9/11 that people don't trip over it anymore because it doesn't come up all that often. But uh, you know, anytime you were in that kind of window where you know you you would do stories talking about 9/11 and and you know whatever Cap would go, yeah, that was before I was out out of the ice. You know, people's heads would explode. How could that be? There was that Spider-Man issue when he was crying in the ruins. And yes, there was, but it doesn't work that way anymore. They call it suspension of disbelief for a reason. Uh, referencing the uh, the Marvel: The Lost Generation, there are a couple of characters from that that appear in John Byrne's X-Men: The Hidden Years, and we're going to be giving that series some significant real estate in my podcast. So we'll bring this back up. Uh, Again, and uh, Tom, part of the reason I brought this up today is because you and I talked about the Yankee Clipper last time. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, and if I ever get to write for Marvel, let me just toss out, I want to create a villain called Head Cannon. It's uh, <laughs> sounds like a, an incredible character. Uh, Steve, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I used to be a stickler for some of those those anachronisms, but now I, I get a real kick out of it when creators just lean into it. Like I just read um, Jerry Dugan and um, Juan Figari's first issue of Iron Man, and he's got a flashback panel where um, Tony and Rhodey are in full Miami Vice 80s yep. suits with mullets. Yep. <laughs> Which of course, you know, does not make any sense, and I and I loved every second of it. Sure, sure. And I think again, like the way the way Jerry and Juan do it there, um, you know, at no point does it say this is 1988 or whatever. It's just, you know, back in the day, Rhodey and I used to do this, <laughs> and you know, we'd whatever we'd go hang out at Studio 54 in the. And 70s. we also and we also had a Jerry curl. 
<laughs> right, right. But but you know, as long as as long as you kind of deal with it vaguely. Yeah, one of the when we were doing uh, years ago Untold Tales of Spider-Man, which were stories that were ostensibly set during like the early years of, of Spider-Man, but we were publishing them in the 90s. That's what we got to and, talk about last time you were on my show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of the one of the decisions that we made early on, you know, that 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 uh, you know, Kurt and I would talk about this stuff, uh, you know, r- at ridiculous length. Uh, and one of the decisions we made was you know, we sort of accepted that, okay, there are cell phones in this world. We're just never going to show them. Uh, so that if you want to be one of those readers who believes those Spider-Man comics were done in the 60s and these can fit in between, therefore we can't put anything there that's not in them. But we're not going to steer to that so, so hard that we can have a character running around going, I have to find a payphone. Uh, because those don't exist when we're putting them out. It was a weird uh, tightrope to walk, and it was probably a lot easier in 1996 than it would be today to, to do the same thing. Because enough of the the rank and file, like you you, it's the same way that like uh, uh, slasher movies don't work the same way because everybody on Earth has a cell phone with a phone and a camera and and all this stuff in their pocket and. You know, it's it's much harder to be lost remotely in the in the woods with no contact. Yeah, when it comes to that, it, it's thinking about it now, like Zoomers and you know, um, every generation that comes after. There's, it's just going to be second nature that, of course, there's a cell phone. Of course, they're just going to call for what they need. And meanwhile, I remember when I was like, you know. A, a preteen and I had to memorize all my friends' numbers in case we had to meet up. And if they were late, then I'd have to find a payphone and call them. <laughs> and that was stuff that they never had to deal with. Or oh, I remember MapQuest. <laughs> we, uh, yeah. we we laugh when they use like terms like cool cat or groovy. In a few years, they're going to be laughing at terms like zaddy in the comic books. <laughs> uh, so my me- was just saying, like, uh, we were... Li- we were listening to radio and there was like LMFAO and we were saying, it's like, Oh, well, the songs are so ridiculous. It'd probably play a lot better for the TikTok generation nowadays. And he's like, they wouldn't know what LMFAO means. And they would think it'd sound silly once you explained it to them. Y2K. What is that? Uh, (laughs) Let me, let me introduce the third one. And this one's a little bit more X-Men related. Uh, Let's talk about the Illuminati. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis introduced the idea that several of Marvel's early heroes, including Professor X and Namor the Submariner, Mr. Fantastic, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Black Bolt, I think Black that's Bolt. all of them, yes, uh, yes. in the initial run, Black Panther turned it down. Anyway, that they had been kind of together as allies from the very beginning and manipulating things behind the scenes. And for a while, it had some pretty big repercussions. Let's talk about the Illuminati for a minute. Um, yeah, this was an idea that Brian came up with when we were working on New Avengers, fairly early on in New Avengers. Um, it was set, like the Illuminati first comes together after the Kree-Skrull War. Uh, and and uh, I don't know how much deep research Brian did. Uh, I, I did some, some research when he proposed it just to kind of see, okay, who had met one another by this point? And, and you know, what are, what are we tripping over if we do it? And he picked a really good point for it, honestly, uh, that the, once you get to the crease, by the time you get to the crease scroll war, most of those principal characters have met one another. And the ones that haven't, when they do, 
it's not like they're meeting each other for the first time. It's just, you know, it's whatever. Black Bolt and Namor are in Contest of Champions or something together where they're two of 50,000 superheroes and nobody comments on it. Um, so so that, you know, uh, that was a cool, like, little little behind-the-scenes thing that was retroactive uh, and that we got plenty of, of, uh, of value out of story-wise. Um, and, and that, at least for, for, for my point of view, didn't really do a lot of damage to the history that existed. And then I want to introduce one more. And this one, I am still sitting with how insane the scope of this story is. Jason Aaron in the newest Avengers run has introduced the Avengers of 1 million <laughs> BC, which brings in uh, old BC prehistoric era versions of Odin and the Phoenix Force and the Starbrand and Ghost Rider and the Black Panther and Iron Fist. And I'm probably missing one or two, but it's a it's a weird, crazy, bizarre concept that I'm still like, whoa, they actually did this. Can we talk about the Avengers of 1 million BC? Sure. Again, it's 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 uh, it's a very big, bold Jason Aaron kind of idea. But pretty much all of those characters, uh, other than Odin and Odin and and the Asgardians, are just so long lived it doesn't matter. Um, they're all legacy characters. Like at this point, we've established that there's not just one Black Panther, but there's been a whole lineage of Black Panthers going back through the years. The Sorcerer Supreme is a title, and so there have been Sorcerer Supremes in the past. We've seen other spirits of vengeance and so forth and so on. So here are the first guys, and they were together back at, in, in real primordial times, uh, protecting the, the nascent Earth from threats, particularly threats from the future, people who would be coming back to butterfly effect out, away all the crazy superhero stuff that was going on. Uh, and it was just, you know, it's a it's a big, crazy Jason Aaron idea. It's one of those things that some people really like and some people really don't like. Uh, I hear about it, you know, every time it comes up when I'm talking to Alex Ross. Alex Ross doesn't buy it at all, doesn't like it at all. Uh, and that's and that's like that's fair. You know, like when you do things like this, uh, the ones that tend to stick are the ones that really resonate with the audience. Uh, and so. You know, we're getting now to the end of Jason's Avengers run. We're in the middle of Avengers Assemble right now. That that brings all the stuff he's been dealing with in the book for five years to a boil. Uh, and then after that, somebody else will be writing Avengers and Jason will be writing something else. And I'm sure people will, will refer back to the Avengers of 1 million BC to one degree or another, but they're probably not going to be as central as they've been for the last five years. Uh, and so the question really boils down to, Will other creators want to play with that stuff uh, and keep it keep it relevant, or will it just kind of fall away uh, and be a thing that was around and then stop being around? In which case, it'll just kind of fade back until somebody does a story you know, in a big way that that uh, that uses that raw material again. Uh, one of my favorite things I've seen writers do when which mostly I'm just reading when I'm lettering comics. So it, it is a comic that I lettered, but like when Zeb Wells finished off Hellions, he took, he had started off with a bunch of characters that no one really seemed to either know what to do with or had ever cared to work with again, like Nanny and Orphan Maker and um, Grey Crow. And, and a lot of people were like, who are these people? And by the end of it, it's, 
I really love that last issue because I could see the writer like take all these toys and be like, these are imperfect and finished, but I put so much character into them that it's a toy you can play with if you want to pick them up. This is where I place them. So if you want to pick them up, they're right there. And if you don't want to pick them up, then anyone who is a fan can just know they exist there. Like they know where to find Grey Crow if a writer wants to pick them up again. And you know where to find Nanny and Orphan Maker if you want to, but it's just kind of left there. That's like my favorite way a Marvel story rounds out. That's what I personally love seeing because then it's like, I don't know where they're going to get picked up again, but at least in this like story, I can feel content that I saw this art. Sometimes they kind of leave it and it's like, I'm going to finish it completely. And I'm like, but there's still monthly issues to get. <laughs> I know only, I know it wouldn't sell well, but I would love a monthly Nanny and Orphan Maker book. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Steve. Well, they're, they're still a big part of Sabretooth and the Exiles. Mm-hmm. So you can follow yeah. their monthly adventures. Um, no, I think that's such a great example what Zeb did in Hellions because he does wrap up every ongoing plot line, but leaves so much added potential to those characters. And even so... I was rushing to get to Jerry's Iron Man. I was behind on Chris Cantwell's run. And he said something. It's good though. Yeah. Chris Cantwell's run is great. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just I just binged it um an hour ago, the last couple issues. And he sets up Riri, and then that's referenced immediately in Jerry's run. So, you know, clearly that's a continual um plan there compared to something like when Brian Michael Bendis left the book and he set up some stuff that for one reason or another, which I'm sure Tom knows, didn't end up turning into immediate plot lines. Um, Yeah, I mean, Zeb did it so gracefully in Hellions, but of course also writers don't always get the leeway to land the ship in the perfect manner. Um, It was was to the point, it was one of those runs where we got better and better at doing it every month to the point where I could see the elements of the storyline tying up and I was talking to editors like, is this ending? He's like, yeah, and it's like, no! (laughs) I, was just <laughs> I grieved at the end of that book. Uh, referencing Christopher, but it was perfect. It re- worked. Referencing Christopher Cantwell's Iron Man, I just had Rage Gear Studios do a print of Cobalt Man for my wall. I haven't even hung it up yet. <laughs> and I tweet, I tweeted this the other day, and someone, uh, Steve Duda, was like, "Oh my gosh, I just saw Cobalt Man and Iron Man." But I'm like, "But was it Cobalt Man? Because it was actually Riri Williams." <laughs> um, uh, so the uh, the other points, and we're going to talk about the Sentry today. Uh, Marvel will occasionally introduce characters that have been there all along to Jessica Jones and the Blue Marvel are great examples, Uh, but we're going to focus on the Sentry in our review today. Before we go there, uh, Tom, these are completely unrelated. These are just questions that bug me. I want to pick your brain on three (laughs) X-Men questions. Okay, okay. Hey, number one. Questions that bug you. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we not have the real names of uh, Rogue and Forge at this point in continuity? I think the answer to that is because nobody has sat down and established those names definitively. For a while, I seem to recall they were using uh, Anna for, for Rogue. Uh, there was a brief period around the time of the movies because the movies give her the name Marie. And I think it was one of those things where that's not her name. Bah, we don't like that. You know, she's going to be Anna now. And it just, it just didn't seem like it stuck. I think it's still, it still counts. It's just nobody uses it. Well, now it's officially Anna Marie LeBeau because she's married to Gambit, but we still don't right. know her original last name and it bugs me. 
<laughs> well, you, yeah, you just you just need a writer to to be invested enough to go. I guess the yeah the the answer there is you know what are Mystique and Destiny's real names? Theoretically, one of them uh, is 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 uh, is is hers. Anna Marie Adler hyphen Darkholm. I'm into it. <laughs> right, right. So so it's just that nobody's actually you know thought about it and and uh, and and written a story with it. Okay, second question. Eunice the Untouchable has a weird kind of candlestick-looking insignia on his belt. And we've talked about it on my show a couple of times. What is that supposed to be? It's kind of spidery, but it also kind of looks like a like a menorah a little bit. It's a a Jack Kirby design. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what it is either. I've never known what it is. Um, You know, Kirby would pull a lot of stuff from things he would see. Uh, Eunice, when he first showed up, was a was a wrestler, uh, and so I haven't researched it or done any any looking. But I'd be willing to bet if you looked into like early 1963, 1964 wrestlers. First of all, they probably you know would wear something like that, not necessarily while they were in the ring, but while they were performing the you know the kefabe you know before that. Um, and I bet I bet it has some. It's an abstraction of something. That the Jack saw and went, oh, okay, that's he's a wrestler. That's that's part of the that's part of the outfit. I have no clue what that thing is. And yes, listeners, I am a 44-year-old man, and these are the questions that keep me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom, my third question: uh, What is the Phoenix Force? I feel like we have uh, had four or five different major explanations. What is the explanation for what the Phoenix Force is at this point? Uh, well, I I suspect. Uh, we're probably on the cusp of at least one more, so I don't necessarily want to. One more say, retcon of the Phoenix. <laughs> well, it's yeah, you know, like like anything that's around long enough, you're constantly doing new stories and you're constantly playing yeah. with stuff that's important or that resonates to people. And new new creators come in all the time that have new ideas and that build on stuff. You know, uh, uh, when when Jean Grey first became the Phoenix. That was Cosmic Rays. That was the Fantastic Four origin. She's landing the shuttle. She's crashing. She goes through the Cosmic Rays. She comes out as Phoenix. That's what Chris and Dave intended at first. But they didn't get a chance to really make it very clear then. Uh, they started the the, the, the uh, Imperial Guard, Starjammer story. Uh, John Byrne came in. It just kind of fell by the wayside, and they got sidetracked with newer ideas and suddenly it was just it was the thing uh and then they accidentally killed gene <laughs> uh, uh and and uh, and you know and she came back and and in bringing her back it was well the gene that died wasn't it wasn't really gene it was a it was a duplicate it was the phoenix and the real gene's been you know in a in a cocoon in the the the, the hudson river where she crashed ever since and so that just completely changed what the Phoenix was. And then later there'd be another story that would expand on that. And it's like a, it's like an onion. There's, there's all these layers as people add more and more and more stuff to it. Um, it seems, it seems to be both uh, and, and the interpretation of it is fascinating. It seems to be both a cosmic entity kind of along the lines of one of the like fundamental forces of the universe that's involved in creation but at the same time, it also seems to be kind of a sentient being that's looking for an emotional being to tie itself to so it can experience life. It's a it's an interesting uh, balance for me. 
there's there's again there's stuff I just can't really talk about here because uh you know there's a bunch of stuff about the Phoenix Force that's been you know a lot of track has been laid over the last couple of years uh for it uh I don't know even necessarily when you know if any of that stuff will will hit fruition and and be revealed and so forth and so I'm I'm sort of sitting here you know, leaning back or leaning very heavily on, well, in the 70s and 80s, it was this, because I don't want to accidentally foul up somebody's upcoming story plans by saying too much. You Fascinating. Can... So listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's Phoenix stuff that's been kind of growing in the background of a lot of stuff, of X stuff and other stuff for a couple of years now. I mean, I, I love I love Echo, and I loved uh, I love Defenders Beyond. Uh, there was some Phoenix stuff there too. God, it's good. Yeah, yeah. So again, I know I know what it is because I was around for all those conversations and in some of those conversations. But it's it's all it's all background stuff. Yet it's not a foreground story. Okay, Tom. Last question: What advice do you give to writers who uh, have eras of continuity that they don't want to touch upon in modern storytelling? Well, what, what, you know, I don't think you have to touch upon any continuity that you don't want to, unless it's so central to the character that it's, you know, if you're writing Cyclops and you don't want to talk about optic blasts, you're writing the wrong book because at the most basic, he's a guy that shoots beams out of his eyes. You're probably going to have to touch on that. But if you don't want to get into you know, Mr. Sinister was behind the orphanage he was at or, or whatever, or you don't want to get into, yeah, he left his pregnant wife to go back and join his girlfriend from the bottom of the river or any of <laughs> any of the stuff that's there. And you just want to get back to just doing, okay, he's, he's Scott Summers. He's like this. He's married to this person. He has these relationships with these people that are around him. You can simply do that. All of that stuff still exists and follows him around. You know, I've had a long, full life, none of the years of which I want to repeat. But uh, uh, not everything that has happened in my life is relevant to me every day. Uh, you know, in this conversation, we've talked about, you know, Marvel The Lost Generation. That wasn't terribly relevant to me yesterday. It probably won't be terribly relevant to me tomorrow. Today it is. So today it comes up and we talk about it. Uh, same sort of thing if you're writing a character like that. Um, you know, again, if you if you if you want to write a character and and you want them to be the complete opposite or completely different from who they are, you might be writing the wrong character. But uh, apart from that, you know, you pick and choose the stuff that's there. You know, the 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 amount of much much like what we were talking about before with Captain America's wartime adventures. Um, you know, there are really more days in Spider-Man's life than there could have been given his age. Uh, and it all expands and contracts depending on the story you're telling in the present. If it's suddenly important to flash back to whatever, that time Gwen Stacy ran off to, to England because she was upset that her dad died and Spider-Man was dealing with that, then in that story, that becomes an important thing. It's put into some sort of temporal relationship with what's going on now and you deal with it. That bit expands for that story. And then once it's done, it contracts back into just being all the stuff that was there. Um, and, and, and you, you move ahead. Um, so you don't really have to even know it all, uh, 
uh, it helps if you have at least a decent understanding of who the character is. Fantastic. Tom, thank you for sharing your brilliant brain and your insights with us. I, uh, <laughs> I love that I can have these nerd conversations and people can keep up with me. I, uh, I say anything to my husband. He's like, Chad, I don't care. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to go hang out with my friends that do care. <laughs> My boyfriend has gotten really into Marvel Snap. He's not a comic reader at all, but he loves the card game. And so he'll constantly show me cards and be like, oh, who's Debris? And I'm like, how long do you have? <laughs> do you have the short, medium, or long answer is something I always say. Like, I'm like, I just booked Chuck Austin on the podcast. And he's like, okay, here's Chuck Austin. I'm like, do you want short, medium, or long answer? <laughs> I, I kind of find that I have the opposite problem dealing with uh, like the films and television. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll go and I'll I'll watch you know Black Panther Wakanda forever, and there'll be some reference in it that like the first Black Panther movie took place six years ago, and I'll go six years ago, and then I stop and I go, yeah, it was six years ago that that came out. <laughs> That's you know I you know, but I expect the sequel to that one. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. It's you know it's Tuesday. I'm used to it all compressing down, so. <laughs> The fact that they're actually having to deal with, uh, you know, the reality that actors, you know, get older <laughs> and time passes for real, uh, it throws me all all the time because I'm so used to thinking of it the other way. Okay, so with this, we're going to break into our review for today. We're going to talk a lot about the Sentry in a minute. Uh, the Sentry was introduced at Marvel in the early 2000s. Uh, there was a series about him and then a series of one-shots that showed him in early Marvel continuity, and then it expanded more into a further Sentry series. We'll talk about what the Sentry is. Sentry does have some X-Men connections beyond the book we're going to review today. He was part of all of the Norman Osborn, New Avengers craziness. Uh, he fought the team. Emma Frost had uh, the Void, which is the Dark Sentry, trapped in her diamond form for a while. Uh, the Sentry was also involved in uh, the um, Uncanny Avengers Four Horsemen of Apocalypse for the Apocalypse Twins. He came back undead there. So there's been some interesting connections with this character over the years. Uh, the title of this episode is the same title as this issue, The Sentry and Angel of the X-Men. We're going to be reviewing Sentry and the X-Men number one from January 2001. The writer on this book is Paul Jenkins, who did a ton of Marvel stuff in the early 2000s. Marvel Knights and Inhumans, uh, Incredible Hulk, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and famously Origin and Wolverine, The End. So there's some X-Men stuff. We'll talk more about Paul another time. Uh, Mark Texiera is the artist. Uh, He's done some X-Men stuff, too, with the Cyclops miniseries. He's worked on Moon Knight and Wolverine and Ghost Rider, Black Panther. Uh, the uh, colorist on this is uh, a queer friend of ours named Jose Villarubia. Uh, Richard Starkings and uh, Josh Rochelle are the letterers. Mike Martz and Mike Raked are the editors on this book. Uh, Tom, start out by telling us who the Sentry is. <laughs> this is another giant sliding timescale thing. So, sort of, yes. The the Sentry was essentially, uh, you know, if, if you boiled it, it down, he was sort of the you know, the, the insert Marvel Universe uh, Superman figure. He was the, the golden guardian of good, this ultimate champion from, you know, the early days of the Marvel Universe, which you can read as the 1960s, or you can read as whenever all this stuff uh, uh, happened. Uh, he had an enemy who was the, the Void, who turned out ultimately to be sort of the, the, the dark side of his own personality, and to get rid of the void years ago, 
they pretty much had to get rid of the sentry as well. Like he had to forget that he was ever the sentry. Uh, and so the story in the first sentry project is all about uh, uh, Bob Reynolds, the, the the guy who is who is the sentry, slowly remembering and learning that he was this forgotten superhero. And the fact that he's remembering this uh, means that that uh, you know the void is coming back too to do evil, awful things. And the only way that they beat him in the past was to to uh, nullify the, the the both of them together. Uh, and so that's sort of the track of that original Sentry project that includes the book that we're we're going to talk about today. The, uh, um, the character Bob Reynolds, the question seems to be, what if a drug addict drank a serum and got the power of a million exploding suns? <laughs> <laughs> Marvel had a wild marketing campaign when the Sentry was first introduced. They kind of alluded that like, ooh, we found some of Jack Kirby's secret drawings in a drawer somewhere, but later it turned out to be just a ruse. Tom, do you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, this was it was it was uh, you know, Sentry was a Marvel Knights project, uh, and so that was Joe Casada and and Jimmy Palmiotti, you know, leading the charge on this stuff. Uh, and so it started out with them, uh, you know, planting this this fake story in Wizard magazine about uh, Artie Rosen, this guy who used to be a creator in the at Marvel in the '60s, and there'd been this strip that everybody had forgotten about, and but it had been started, and they'd found this stuff, and they were gonna bring it back and so forth. And it was just a, uh, you know, a, a clever way to promote the, this idea or this project uh, before it came out that would maybe get people's attention in a way that would be different from all the other stuff that was being, being promoted then. You know, Artie Rosen was basically a, 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 an amalgamation of the names of the two big letters of that era, Artie Simek and Sam Rosen. Sure. Uh, and they mocked up, uh, you know, one or two faux, you know, quasi Jack Kirby style drawings of like the Sentry and one or two of the other characters, and uh, you know they showed bits of those in in Wizard and on I guess you know Newsarama or whatever the the, the web presence was at that time, um, all as a as a build up to actually announcing what the project was, which was really uh, Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee doing their their follow up. To, they had done uh, the Inhumans for Marvel Knights the first year, Inhumans 1 through 12. And the second project that they did together was, was the Sentry. Uh, I was an avid Wizard Magazine reader. I, I was like, I still have probably, I don't know, 150 of them in a long box in my parents' house. Uh, and I was completely and utterly fooled by the marketing campaign. As a, <laughs> I guess, I mean, I guess I would have been like 10 years old, so I can forgive myself, but... I completely bought into it. I thought it was real. I could not have been more excited. And I loved and still love Jay Lee's work. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing. Mom, they they found an old Marvel character. <laughs> I also, Chad, the last time I was on, I mentioned a Wizard Magazine April Fool's Day thing that you didn't remember. I wonder if Tom remembers it, where art was mocked up to announce that Spider-Man was a mutant joining the X-Men. Do you have the memory of this? Only only a vague one. Like you say that okay. and I go, oh yeah, I remember that happening, but I don't remember any details because that was just something that Wizard Magazine did on their on their own. Uh, and there wasn't any project behind it or it wasn't a, a planted thing or anything. It was just a fun, you know, Wizard April Fool's joke rather than a Marvel April Fool's joke. I could not find any record on the internet and I was starting to feel like I Berenstein bared it into my head. <laughs> no, I think, I think you're, I think you're right because they would do that sort of thing. They, they were, uh, uh, 
they were scamps at Wizard Magazine, <laughs> and, and and they would do a lot of of you know weird and and crazy stuff. Uh, and so again, I have a vague memory of what you're talking about. I don't remember any of the details. I can't picture the art in my head or whatnot. But I was not an avid Wizard reader. I was an editor at that point, and so I would look <laughs> at it when it would come in or whatnot. But I wasn't I wasn't reading it like a fan would read it. Steve, Thank I'm going to challenge you to find this. I want to see it. <laughs> next, next time I visit my parents, I will go through every Wizard magazine until I find <laughs> this announcement. Uh, okay, so with this, let's uh, let's break into our issue for today. Century X Men number one has a gorgeous cover. This is a Marvel Knights book. Uh, Tom, do you want to give us the the short version of what Marvel Knights was? Yeah, Marvel Knights was a packaging deal. Um, at the time, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. Uh, you know, had a had a, a company that they ran by themselves, Event Comics, where they published Ash and uh, uh, Twenty Two Brides and Painkiller Jane and a bunch of other creator-owned comics. Uh, and this was around the period of the Marvel bankruptcy, so uh, you know, Marvel was either in bankruptcy or or working to get out of bankruptcy and so forth. Uh, and and Marvel had done the Heroes Reborn deal, uh, in which. Uh, you know the, the 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 rights to a bunch of the core Marvel characters were given over to uh, Wildstorm and and uh, Extreme Studios to produce for what turned out to be a year. Uh, and so uh, Marvel Knights at least started off as as a similar thing as the packaging deal. Uh, Jimmy and Joe were able to make a deal with Marvel's ownership at the time to get the rights to do books for like four characters initially, Daredevil, Black Panther, uh, Inhumans, and, and Punisher, who at that point were all kind of, you know, languishing or between titles or whatever, in the hopes that they could, you know, do something with them that would make them more relevant and more exciting and more whatever. Uh, and they did a really good job of, of that. Uh, and so the deal expanded beyond that uh, and they got to do more. Uh, and ultimately, you know, Joe ended up becoming Marvel's editor in chief. Uh, so the Sentry was one of those projects. The first uh, in the first flight, Inhumans was always planned as just a twelve-issue series, had a beginning, middle, and end. Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee did it. It ran for twelve issues, and I'm going to guess fifteen, sixteen months because it was hardly. Uh, it took a little while to produce. Um, it got a bunch of acclaim. People really liked it. It's great. It. Yeah. For an Inhuman series, uh, and so they were going to do a follow-up, and and uh, you know somehow I don't know who came up with with what. I don't know if it was Paul's idea. I don't know if it was Joe's idea. I don't know if it was Jimmy's idea or Jay's idea, or probably some confluence of all of them came up with this idea for the for the century. Um, you know, I can certainly see Joe's fingerprints in it. At, in that, uh, you know, on top of a bunch of other influences. There's a lot of there's a lot of Marvel man in it, uh, and I know you know Joe when he was first kind of getting back into comics and reading stuff, that that Marvel man Miracle Man stuff was very very much an influence on him, and so doing something kind of like that, uh, I think would have been would have been appealing to him. Um, but it it came out, it started to be released. It was supposed to be six issues in total, and by the time we they got to issue four, issue five, much like on Inhumans. Jay was running behind and producing really slowly. Uh, and so as a, as a way to kind of buy him some time and space, uh, they decided to expand the story into, I think it was six, but it might have been four 
uh, one shots of that would be, you know, the Sentry and uh, other characters in the Marvel Universe. So this Sentry X-Men was one of those. There was a Sentry Fantastic Four. There was, you know, a Sentry Hulk. Uh, I'm not sure what the other ones were off the top of my head. I have to go back and look or really think about it. And those were all written by Paul and produced by most of the rest of the creative team, but not drawn by Jay. So he could eventually finish uh, Sentry Six and bring the thing to a conclusion. And that's kind of why when this comic opens, we're sort of on the on the on the the the, the cusp of an event happening. Uh, and that's the the inciting incident for this whole thing. Everybody's waiting around to have the big climactic fight with the with the void. The void is coming. The void is back, and there's gonna be trouble. <laughs> hey, now <laughs> uh, this uh, this cover is gorgeous. It's uh, there's a lot of real estate given for angels' wings. They are textured and feathered and so pretty. It's all kind of in browns, yellows, and blacks. Uh, I'll post an image, of course. It's a beautiful cover. Angel, I'm going to do the 30-second recap. Warren Worthington is the child of billionaires. He joins the X-Men after his education in private school. He has to strap his wings down. His dad is murdered by his uncle. And then his his, his evil uncle, Dazzler, we're going to get to that story on my show soon. Uh, his, uh, his mom dies. Uh, he goes on to be a founding member of the Champions and inherits his family estate. He goes on to help uh, fund and found X Factor. Right after this is where Cameron Hodge goes crazy. He gets his wings chopped off. Apocalypse turns him into Archangel. He's now got this like evil personality on his back, which is kind of void-like, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. And uh, in this in this era of continuity, he is back with the X Men. In his, he's no longer wearing his skull cap. He's got his blonde hair, and uh, he's trying to you know get a new lease on life with his blue skin and his death wings, basically. Uh, Tom, do you want to open this book for us? Uh, tell us what happens at the beginning. Sure. So as I, as I mentioned before, we open up with, there's a, there's a, a group of heroes that have all assembled to fight the void who is coming back. And that's, you know, on the horizon, they're all waiting for for the void to appear and the battle to start. Uh, and we focus in on, on, uh, you know, Warren Worthington, who's among them for some reason, you know, like the one X man who happens to be there is angel because he's going to, going to have a one shot. And God, uh, and, and God, does he need a haircut? <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's the modern angel, and and you know the narration kind of gets into his head a little bit, and there's a little editorializing as Paul talks about the the early days before he became so convoluted and difficult to understand. Um, and he's been, and so, he's been listening to Lana Del Rey a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know he's 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 blue skinned and 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 uh, you know been through a bunch of stuff. Uh, and so as he looks over at the, you know, the inspiring figure of, of the century who had an impact on his life years ago that he's only just now remembered because everybody's now remembered the century, we begin to flash back into the story of what the century did for, for him and how he impacted on his life. And uh, so we cut back, we cut to the, uh, the Westchester mansion of the, the X-Men in the very early days of the X-Men, it's the original five. Uh, uh, characters, uh, you know, in in their school for superheroes, Professor X uh, schooling them on stuff. Uh, and on this particular day, there's an exercise. It's going to be Cyclops and Angel have to rescue these two mock hostages who are basically like those old Fisher Price people. There's a it's like a circle on a wooden peg. There's two of them there, and the other three X Men, Marvel Girl, Iceman, and Beast, are going to play the the bad guys. Uh, and so they've, Iceman has like sealed them all off in this giant block of ice. 
Uh, and and the goal is that Cyclops and Angel have to go in, rescue the hostages, beat the beat the bad guys, uh, and so forth. It's a it's a typical day at at uh, you know Xavier, uh, uh, you know the Xavier Academy. Um, you know, it's like a pop quiz. Uh, I think it's I think it's worth only about a sixth of his grade. So Warren's not taking it terribly seriously. <laughs> he's he's young. He's full of bravado, and he and Cyclops, you know, set out. And Cyclops like blasts a hole through the through the uh, the ice uh, shield, and and the you know Angel flies in, and Cyclops is immediately swarmed by by uh, you know, Beast and an Iceman and such, and uh, uh, you know rather than than help him out, Angel you know goes to rescue the hostages uh, and gets waylaid by 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 Jean. The hostages fall in theory, uh, you know because uh, Angel's doing like this dive, uh, and he he pulls up before he, he can hit the ground. Like he's afraid to go full out because he could go plowing into the ground and hurt himself. And because he's not fast enough, you know, in, in, in this mock uh, test, uh, you know, Cyclops is theoretically dead and the hostages are theoretically dead. And presumably he's dead too, but nobody seems to mention that. Uh, and professor X kind of tells him like, you know, you, 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 know, you, you screwed this up for all that you've, done a few missions already and, and, and been on this thing. Like you're not, you're not ready. And, you know, he kind of, he kind of snaps at, at, uh, at, at Chuck and, and says, well, like, you know, like, you know, anything about, about flying, like, you know, come, you come, you come tell me when you've done a, a barrel roll through, through, you know, live fire and so forth. And so he gets pissed and he storms out. Uh, the juxtaposition between the brooding grumpy blue angel at the beginning. And then we get this gorgeous uh, double page spread of like happy young angel, like land, like he, it, you get the impression based on the speed lines that he's like jumped toward the water and is like bouncing off. Uh, it's <laughs> beautiful. I really, I really love that two page spread. It might be my favorite part of this book. If I'm honest, um, Paul Jenkins has a very specific type of uh, narration if you read the Inhumans, there's this like deep kind of thoughtful exploration of the characters. Uh, it, it, Ariana, what were your thoughts on the way this book is lettered? Um, there's parts that like, from my mindset, I would have chosen differently just because I letter so differently. And I feel like there's a few choices in spacing that Tom wouldn't let me get by with. If, if if it was nowadays. However, <laughs> I did notice some real strokes of genius in this book. And um, one of them, I, I, I'll, I'll talk about it once we get through my part. But like, there's some points where I'm like, oh, wow, he, he took a moment to really, really do something special just for this particular page. And I think that really shines in this book, though there is a challenge here that's really difficult to address and that's when you are lettering digitally over uh, an artwork that's far more um, fluid like watercolor or gouache or something that's like a medium that you can see the materials in it um, it's a lot harder to look natural to it i found the same challenge when i was doing or as i still do demon days with peach momoko is she does full watercolors and Copics for her drawings. And it looks gorgeous on the page, but if I'm lettering digitally on top of it, it's a glaring difference. 
when you have those two mediums together. So a lot of my job is trying to find ways to soften my digital lettering so that you don't notice it as, as strongly. Like when I do sound effects, I try to use methods to roughen the edges or soften the color so that like you don't notice it as much as you're noticing her artwork. It's, it's very tricky to do. And so that's probably the thing I probably would have approached differently. But there's one page I, I saw in here and I'm like, I don't think I could have done nearly as well as he did it on this page. It's rare. It's rare for me to make a comment like this, but in the caption boxes on this, the font that they choose makes the caption boxes like really laborious for me to read at this book. Yeah, the leading. The, I would not have done the leading that way. Um, the leading is too narrow. That's the lines between the sentences on when they're stacked together. Maybe that's what it's it is. Narrow. Yeah. It's really hard to see. And then since the text is like really long and tall it's got this kind of spidery look to it that's that can be hard to hard to parse at times uh steve did you have any thoughts on the first section of this book well actually uh building on ariana's comment sorry did i pronounce that right huh ariana is fine ariana's comment um so i edit department of truth the image and martin simmons is the artist on that and he's a painter He, he does physical media and digital um, and that's something that we had to navigate when we started the book. There aren't a lot of sound effects. It's not a punching comic, but um, Aditya Bidikar, our letterer, he has to kind of take that extra step to make sure it doesn't look as jarring on top of painted art as a traditional sound effect might look. Um, and that's something that jumped out to me here, too. It's also... Uh, my mind is always stuck in paneling um, and just page real estate, and a lot of these are very full pages, so I can only imagine it it was a bit of a nightmare to get all of the text in there while not obscuring all of the action. Um, I do go back and forth on the kind of narration that Paul is using here. It's not a tactic that, like, I, one, I don't think we see a lot of narration like this in comics anymore. I don't think it's in vogue at the moment. Um, two, it's not something that's ever come naturally to me as a writer, the sort of more, um, the, the word that's coming to mind is ponderous, which sounds negative, but that sort of, uh, uh, approach to the internal voice, especially in a character like Warren Worthington, who is not the deepest lake emotionally <laughs> most of the time, um, you know, that's not necessarily his reputation among the X-Men. So uh, it, some unusual choices being made for sure. Uh, I'll say the other thing that cracked me up is just, um, you know, when I started reading the X-Men in the late nineties, I think that's right around the time Angel got this outfit and it looked incredibly cool when like our Adams or Lino Francis, you would draw it and it looks so strange uh with text painting it. it with the like, with the pink x across his chest yeah 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 it's like it it's one of those costumes that seems to be kind of artist dependent versus like a havoc that anyone in the world can draw and it's going to look cool this book does not feel like a 60s x-men book except the antics in the danger room which we just had like Iceman calls cyclops <laughs> eyeballs and then <laughs> professor x just yells at the teens he's such a jerk back then. <laughs> Uh, Arietta, do you want to take us through the next part of the book? Sure, sure. Um, when we leave off from the point of his memories where he was scolded and then he turns around and scolds Professor X, is like, oh, you'll never understand me because you don't fly, which is rude, 
for someone in a wheelchair. But that aside, I guess sure. Professor X decides to punish him by um, being like, hey, you're going to go talk to the sentry about this. He's going to mentor you about you being reckless like this. And so it has him contemplating the sentry because like, here's someone who is this hero, this established hero. And this is a point in Angel's life where he's so young and untested that um, he doesn't feel like a hero yet. And it's like a place he's eager to get to, but he doesn't know what to do. And so he get goes flies to the watchtower in Manhattan, which admittedly, I was in Japan when Sentry was popping off. Well, we were based at, we were, my dad is military, so we were based out there. We could not get a lot of comics, especially not monthlies. So I still don't have a lot of context for Sentry. So when I saw the watchtower, I'm like, what the heck is that? What is going on? <laughs> That was just there the whole time. So, yeah. <laughs> I like how just naturally it's like, of course, it's there. Everyone knows it's there. Um, so and, instead, the and instead of a Herbie, he's got clock. It's a little robot that tells him <laughs> when there's danger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, he goes there and um, the sentry lets him in and basically offers him advice. And... A lot of it is the sentry pointing out, and it's like, you know, you have to face your fears, and Angel's arrogant and young, and he's like, oh, I don't have fears, and the sentry admits, oh, I'm afraid all the time, and I guess he's trying to relay the advice of, like, it's better to try and fail than to not try at all, but instead his advice is, I've learned over the years that it hurts more to fail than to fall, and that that's a little confusing to me. And I think it's confusing to Angel because it's like, wait, I don't get it. You're going to fall either way if you fail or not. Ariana, you don't understand. You can't fly like I can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Once you do a barrel roll, you'll you get me. <laughs> and then uh, he does uh, elaborate on it. And I, and I finally get it. He says, bruises go away after a while, son. It's a lot harder to shake that memory uh, of where you made your mistake in the first place. And that I totally understand. When it comes to learning design and lettering, I remember my mistakes more often than not because those are my best lessons. And um, that really helps me be better at designing is the times I flub up. I don't flub up like that the same way again. So that that I, I totally get it. But then he goes on to further give the advice um, of basically you could get hurt and you can get killed in this line of work, which is superheroing, but um, it's so important that your whole well-being is secondary. And it's like, that is advice in most other cases you wouldn't give to someone when you're mentoring them. It's like, throw your whole body away if you have to. You'll have fun at some point. And <laughs> it's like, wait, what? <laughs> But this being superheroing, this being people's lives on the line, I can kind of see how that advice works. Like you have to take those risks. You have to try, even if you get hurt, even if you might get killed, because, you know, there's so much riding on it. Other people's lives are on the line. And who knows? You could get a thrill out of it. So why not? <laughs> so he's pretty much encouraging him to face his fears, even in the face of, you know, dire doom and such and then easy for him to say he's got the power of a million exploding suns <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and then 
their talk is interrupted by um, a missile silo, silo that's been attacked and it happens to be in Massachusetts near the X-Men. So they're going to like um, go after the guy and the guy is the general who I've never heard of before. And I realized probably never existed before. <laughs> he, he did not. He, he, he was one of the sentries villains. Yeah. So, so, so. I, I found that fascinating. But the next page, the, it introduces the general, but in a weird way, because the narration introduces the general. It explains he's basically, he utilizes all these toys and mechanisms. He's basically like an artificer class, but all of his military troops are toys. And they're all very powerful, like deadly toys that he uses to take over this missile silo. But the imagery is different. The imagery is beautiful artwork of, angel just looking out into the distance like modern angel looking out into the distance and contemplating these things like mm -hmm. remembering these things and it's like this is beautiful artwork but the the narration is giving all the context um so i thought that was it was an interesting choice and it still works it's still pretty um and then that comes the page after that is the page where i'm like wow letter went overtime this is insane because this is like a good example of um the letter taking the assignment and going 10 steps ahead because it is a page that says the sentry and the x-men and it's a classic comic book cover with the artwork of you know the x-men going up against the general and you finally get to see the general on this like faux comic book cover and it's just covered in all of these lettering nuances of like classic, you know, spread like classic text that they would slap onto comic book covers to make kids pick it up. Like the golden guardian of good joins the world's most amazing teenagers and, and all the true believer stuff. And I thought it was like, dang, that's a little bit. <laughs> but I got the, the general's that. wearing like head to toe blue with a red cape and a red beard. He's got a weird staff. Uh, there's a bunch of guns all around his feet. And then he's got a, the worst belt with like a giant letter G on it. Uh, well, the general is not a... Tanks. I'm sorry, go ahead. Little toy tanks on his feet. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the general so is not a villain that is often used except for the Sentry, but there is a bizarre X-Men connection. We're not going to cover this story on my podcast, but in New Avengers number nine by Brian Michael Bendis, we learned that later on the general has hired Mastermind from the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants to implant a mutant mental virus into the Sentry's brain, which makes the entire world forget the Sentry's existence for several years. So the X-Men and everyone else have forgotten that the Sentry ever existed. It's kind of the story like Peter David did where Mastermind made Lorna Dane forget that she killed her parents on the plane. Uh, Mastermind has a weird prehistory that's just like occasionally touched on that shows him as a, a like a super telepath instead of a, an illusionist. But th there's a there's some Mastermind. Go back and listen to the trial of Mastermind on my show if you want more context there. But there's a there's a weird general connection there too. That's wild. So yeah, they basically go through the battle, and I got to say the artwork for these pages are really cool with the action and the spread of basically their montage of getting to the silo fighting the toy tanks, um, finally confronting the general. And this is the most wildest, like, it It was a it was a moment that was, like, definitely pulled from the Watchmen, except it was played straight. 
like completely where he's like, I'm going to send out these nuclear warheads and destroy France because for some reason I'm hyper fixated on France. (laughs) And Sentry's like, I won't let you do that. That won't happen. And he's like, I already did it five minutes ago. And everyone's shocked. And it's like, wait a second. (laughs) And this is wild for an X-Men book in the 60s. Is There's a big body count in this one. The teenagers are looking at corpses all over the place. It's (laughs) kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steve, take us through the end of the book. Yeah, well, I was going to add, too, I I didn't think about this while reading it, but hearing you talk about it, every time you say the general, I can't stop thinking about the car insurance jingle, the... For a great low rate you can get online, go to the general and save some time. That was See, and I get I get a uh, Hamilton. Here comes the general, rise up like that. That's, that's, uh, car insurance is what he's doing these days. He's given up villainy. <laughs> he's he's discovered that there's more better profit to be made. It's it's a more secure racket than than than, than blowing up France is is being. Uh, he eBay sold all his toy tanks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so once he's announced that he's launched the nukes, uh, the sentry says there's no time to waste. He has to get to those missiles. And then he does specifically say, Angel, can I count on you? Even though the, the rest of the team is active at this moment, which I'm I'm sure was an insult to Scott and the others. Um, but he blasts off the sentry to chase down the nukes. And the general uh, immediately incapacitates the rest of the X-Men. Um, his tiny toy helicopter shoots some goo in Cyclops' eyes. Uh, Beast is just shot in the back by some tanks and Jean gets screamed at which was enough to put her out of action uh, in the early days uh, while Iceman gets melted so Beast that image of him getting boss. melted is wild <laughs> yeah it's also the one on the page that kind of looks like the retro cover so um, you forget who this like weirdly buff 14 year old in a speedo is for a second either um, he got I, melted or he peed <laughs> <laughs> and uh beast definitely got the rawest deal by just getting blasted by a number of tanks in the back um but then angel who the sentry could not count on immediately gets caught in a carbon filament and this is the part of the issue that is most contrived in like a charming way the general's jets take angel upward and drop him on some sort of a chain link overlook above the general um, just kind of randomly and the general boasts for a moment until he sees on his classic supervillain screen that the sentry is disabling his warheads uh, you know making short work of them and just as the sentry is closing in on the final warhead the general angrily uh, presses the ignition and we get a great big shot of the sentry exploding in the air on one of the rockets. Um, and I guess Warren screaming, sentry, no, my my mentor of five minutes. Uh, <laughs> or actually, couldn't it even, even be him? Because whoever's screaming doesn't have a mask. So I don't, maybe this is Bobby just really upset. <laughs> like he thought the sentry was handsome and he's sad that he got blown up is, is my head <laughs> cannon, I guess. I think that it's Angel from like current time remembering that time. And he he's so silly. He's just like saying that out loud, like, oh, Sentry, no, while he's remembering it. That's extremely amusing to imagine like Spider-Man and the Hulk and everyone else on the Statue of Liberty poised for battle and Warren <laughs> just screaming, Sentry, no, with no context. 
But no, sorry, guys. I was having an internal monologue. <laughs> Blame my death wings. <laughs> if if I if I had to take a guess here, just looking at these, the back of this book, um, I I would be willing to bet you know a couple of things. One, uh, text was late. Uh, and 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 two text started cutting corners to get it done. So you know, I, I look at that 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 page that's the sentry being blown up with the missile, and there's no missile, and there's no background, and I think text just drew the wrong angel there, and it was late enough that nobody could fix it, and so they just went okay, or they didn't they they were moving fast enough that they didn't notice it. Uh, it's also possible that text was drawing this book out of sequence. So he would draw whatever pages he thought were the were the most important or the easiest or the most fun sequences, and then because sure, there's sure. a there's a lot of pages like the page right before that, it's a, like a ten panel page and a ton of stuff happens on it. So I suspect that that when when Paul plotted it, that was a bunch more real estate, and because uh, yeah, Tex had had gone well, I'm going to do this page as a two panel page. Some of those panels have to go somewhere, and it's going to be. I'm going to cram them all onto this this page. This, uh, is, so I, this is the curse. This is the curse of comic creation. The more comics you make, the more you you have difficulty just shutting off your mind and enjoying it because you know too much. You know how how it gets made, and you can see it. Like I see that really busy panel, and there's this really cool overlay of the general's face on yeah. like some kind of display and I'm like oh that's cool but it's covered by a big word balloon and I'm like yep. Ooh, I wouldn't do it like that no no I, I, again these were all uh yeah these these uh Tiva books were all done as sort of an emergency thing to begin with sure um because because the main century book was running behind uh, and I think I, I suspect having having worked with Dex in the past uh that that he was probably late on this and probably was was cutting corners here and there pretty severely sure. it's definitely illuminating to know that this was kind of an emergency measure to to pad out the series and it's also wild to think that there was a day when bill sinkevich was who you called to do a quick issue yeah well it it uh you know again with the, with the marvel knights guys they they uh, you know, the, they wanted to maintain a high level of quality on everything that they did, uh, and so they 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 didn't tend to <laughs> uh, they didn't tend to have as much experience editorially to not go to slow people to bail <laughs> them out when their books were behind. So sometimes their their uh, uh, you know their 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 safety measures or their or their compensation measures. I think even. If I'm not mistaken, I have to go back and look at the credits here, but I think this was actually credited editorially, not even to them, but to to uh, Mike Martz. Mike Martz and Mike Rake are, are credited, and Mike Rake, who who were the X-Men editors of the period. Mm -hmm. So it it's entirely possible that it was it was one of those things where because they had to get four books done, uh, you guys all you know you four offices each take one and 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 <laughs> and, 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 and do them. And you know Joe and Jimmy and whomever Nancy Casada, uh, you know, will will oversee these. I don't remember any of this. I didn't do any of these books, so mm -hmm. I'm just conjecturing. But you know, I, I I I think these were whipped together pretty fast. And and in some places like that, it shows the earlier page that Ariana was talking about, where it's just Angel 
like looking out in the distance and the narration explaining all of the stuff the text was supposed to have drawn there <laughs> is a is a is another example of that yeah I, you can't unsee it when you know how comics get made you can see it everywhere yeah if you make even one single comic in your life the amount of sympathy you have for anything that ever bugged you just quadruples <laughs> at a deadline and we understand uh, Steve, yeah. how, does the, how does the book wrap up so then we cut to um, after this lovely explosion page we cut to uh, warren is now he's still tied up he's on this chain link promenade um over the general's chair and he's listening to the general boast about having defeated everyone and you know pay attention this is how you do it and of course, this is the time now the angel reflects on the lesson that the sentry taught him because he believes the sentry has been um, obliterated in, in the sky. And of course, for the sentry's lesson having been that sometimes it's easier to fall than fail or better to fall than fail, uh, angel finds himself in a spot to literally fall and save the day uh, as he's tied up 40 feet above the general and could use his own body uh, that the general has forgotten about uh, to fall on top of him and squish him and save the day. And, Which is uh, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, you know, it works better as a heroic moment uh, in context <clears throat> than when the super strong and vulnerable man was telling the bird-winged teenager that sometimes you just have to put your health second. The mentally um, ill man says, throw yourself off a building sometime. It'll help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Angel, uh, as his narration says, jumps and falls like, quote, a cartoon anvil, um, which, which is a great way to add some extra uh, gravity to the scene. And he falls right on top of the general. And there's actually kind of a terrifying final panel here of a, a blood splatter under Angel and the general. And the next scene, uh, you know, Angel, he's got some bandages, he's being helped over by Hank, and the general's getting loaded into an ambulance, but you can't actually really tell if it's a body bag or if he's strapped on there. It kind of ends up looking like Angel just killed the general, and I don't think the text clarifies it. Um, but again, it's a great lesson. Hey, teenager, you gotta kill some people sometimes. I'm Superman. Enjoy it. Uh, As they're pulling away the body bag, there's literally a line that says, I can't believe he's dead. Which no, I think means the sentry. Yeah. Oh, oh, gotcha. Yeah. But I misread it the same way first, too, where Warren's like, I can't believe I killed a guy by falling on him. That's crazy. <laughs> what a story that'll be to tell. <laughs> um, and then so of course the sentry makes his his dramatic, surprising return. Uh he's fine. He's looks a little worse for wear, but you should see the other guy. Ha 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 ha. So you having fun yet, child who just fell? Uh, and then Angel, you know, we're back in the present. We're in his his 2000s outfit, and he's reflecting back on the lesson that the century taught him that day and how he's probably going to have to fly to his death, but at least he'll be able to take comfort in knowing that he learned a lesson a long time ago from a very wise man. The only way you'll ever truly fly is to learn how to fall. My uh, my day yeah, job still is as a therapist. Yeah, my day job is as a therapist. I'm gonna send Angel my number. He <laughs> needs some support. I have I have something that it, this reminded me of. There's this um very classic movie. I'm sure you guys have all seen it. It's called uh, Cinderella Three: A Stitch in Time. Disney made to video direct. Anyways, my friend and I were watching it one day, and the whole movie was incredible because it was bad, but um 
Prince Charming, they decide to give him a personality, which is not a good idea. He's <laughs> supremely dumb in a good nature way. So he's like 100% himbo. And at the at one point, he has to get down the set of stairs and his father, the king, says, no, you can't go down. And he's like, okay. And he jumps head first out a window <laughs> to go save the day. And I was like, why is he going back? It's just the animated so straightforwardly we just we just died laughing we had to stop the movie and just die laughing and all i could think was watching this angel scene it's like why didn't he go feet first yes (laughs) uh we are slightly over time we'll we'll have to wrap up there this is a fun issue it fits weirdly into the x-men continuity uh it's a wild ride so readers go ahead and or listeners go ahead and read this along with us uh we had a, a great time uh steve ariana tom it is such an honor to have you uh, give up at 90 minutes on an evening and just hang out with me it really truly means a lot from my heart i uh I'm so grateful for uh, for the opportunity to just hang out this evening. This meant a lot to me. As we are uh, wrapping up, we're going to put this episode out on January 30th. Where can people find you online? And is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, Grey Malkin Lane is Grey Malkin PP Like Podcast on Instagram. Grey Malkin underscore Lane. Uh, excuse me. P Like Podcast on Twitter. Grey Malkin underscore Lane on, uh, on Instagram. The next episode after this, we're going to keep doing some angel stuff. We're going to explore the Angel Revelations miniseries. Uh, and my guests are going to be the incredible duo of uh, Shelby Criswell and Steens, uh, who are creators I uh, uh, who I respect so much. Uh, I'm excited to have them on the show. Uh, the Patreon episode around this time is going to be uh, on the Crimson Dawn with uh, the writer of the Crimson Dawn, Ben Robb. So uh, we have some deep exploration there as uh, I'll say I haven't seen Ben in in years and years. Uh, so, uh, you know, feel free to, to, to say hi to him for me and Tell him that I've been enjoying the new Quantum Leap. I'll tell him. He will be thrilled to hear that. Ben's been on my show once before. I'm so happy to hang out with him again. He's a great guy. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to hang with him. Uh, so as we're doing our outros, uh, we'll go in the same order. Uh, Ariana, Steve, and then Tom. Uh, hi. Uh, ben, um, I, you can find me at arianamar.com. That's my portfolio site. I just started a blog there recently offering advice and stuff to comics creators. My most recent blog post was how to hire a letterer. So highly recommend it. Please check it out. Um, I was active on Twitter at comment airy, A-I-R-Y, but um, I'm not active on Twitter at the moment because it's kind of messy. So uh, I am on Hive with the same, but Hive is also messy. So like not really doing a lot of social media. So you can find me on my blog. You can contact me there too if you're ever interested in um, talking lettering or if you need advice. Mm-hmm. Oh, Wonderful. and uh, my most recent work coming up is uh, X-Men Red. Super cool. Just finished that up. So it's Storm and the Brotherhood next and um, Captain Britain. And I'm looking forward to working on uh, Rogue and Gambit very soon. That's I'm super excited for that. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Steve. Yeah, you can find me at stevefox.com. That's F-O-X-E. Uh, I'm similarly trying to break away from social media. I'm, I'm praying that Twitter is gone by the time this podcast goes up. <laughs> it um, won't be. But- <laughs> 
Well, out of necessity, you can find me there as well at Steve underscore Fox, F-O-X-E. Um, if this goes live the end of January, I think my first creator-owned miniseries at Dark Horse will have just been officially announced. Um, so that'll be exciting. Um, I have a couple different things coming up in the Marvel Universe, none of which I think will be announced by then. Um, you can look for those over the spring and late summer. And... Continue to check out Department of Truth and World Tree, which is the other image series I'm, I'm editing that's going to launch in April. Wonderful. Steve, thank you for coming back to the show. It's great to see you. And then uh, finally, Tom. Uh, well, I, I still have the website at tombrevoort.com where I'm writing about old comics of all sorts every week. Uh, all the kid, the cool kids are subscribing to my Substack. Substacks <laughs> are apparently the latest thing. Uh, so I've been I've been doing one of those that comes out every week and that also has uh, a lot of chatter about old comics and, and other things. Um, as for everywhere else, I'm I'm on all the different platforms, and so you can look me up at you know Tom Brevoort at Linktree to find all the other links to all the the other stuff. Um, and I'm in your your local comic shop every Wednesday with something. <laughs> your name is on everything uh it was so great to hang out with you all and to have you guys meet each other if you had this was fun too uh what an honor thank you everybody uh we've got some wild content coming up in february uh check the uh check the announcements baby cas is coming on the show we've got some amazing things coming up in the few next few months so uh so uh, make sure to give us a listen uh all right thank you thank you uh tom steve ariana i uh, i appreciate you all so much uh thanks everybody for listening we'll see you back here next time on gray Mountain Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.